Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucaran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars, defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time. Serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. Atheists argue that there is no evidence for the resurrection of Christ or any miracles in the Bible. Unfortunately, many Christians agree with this premise and believe that miracles like the resurrection must be accepted by faith alone. Pat argues that the Christian faith is built upon compelling evidence and that there is solid historical evidence for the resurrection. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube series, Question of the Week, where he presents the compelling case for the resurrection. Aloha, and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week. And we want to thank you for being here. This is brought to you by the Honolulu Christian Church and Evidence and Answers. And so, at the time of this taping here, we are nearing, we are the week before Easter, and so we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we spent the last few weeks talking about the historical reliability of the Gospels. So in the Gospels and in the New Testament, we have an early account and a historically reliable account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the climax of Jesus' ministry here. Jesus predicted, he prophesied his own death and resurrection, and what's unique is that Jesus accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. Now, I've been speaking with many Christians and skeptics, and many of them say, well, it's just a matter of faith. There's really no evidence for the resurrection. You just have to take it by faith. Well, I would disagree. I would say that there is good evidence for the resurrection. And when we're talking about the resurrection, a lot of people are thinking, you know, well, you can't prove it through the experimental sciences. And remember, when it comes to empirical or the experimental sciences, remember how that process works. It's based on a theory and then repeatable events upon which you can experiment and test the theory and then you come to your conclusion. History doesn't function like that. You can't continually repeat history and observe it over and over and over again. All right, We use more what's called the historical sciences or what may also be known as the forensic sciences. All right, You look at the historical evidence that is there and then you build your case on the most reasonable conclusion upon the evidence that's there. That's what lawyers do in court. That's what CSI and other detectives do when trying to figure out what happened at the particular crime scene. Okay, so this is more the historical or forensic kind of science approach that we have to use. Common mistake and misunderstanding that people often have when it comes to the area of the resurrection. When it comes to the resurrection, we follow what's called the minimalist approach. This was developed by a good friend and mentor, Dr. Gary Habermas, right? And anything he writes on the resurrection, you want to read. He did his PhD at the 
Michigan State University there, and his panel was five atheists. And he said, well, I know that you reject about 80% of the Gospels. Let's just take the part that you agree is historical and see if we can build a case for the resurrection. And he successfully defended his dissertation there. So this is called the minimalist approach. He studied hundreds of New Testament scholars and historians, skeptics, critics, liberal and conservative. And these are the minimal facts that we all agree upon. First, Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Right now, this is agreed upon because there are numerous historical writings and historical sources that affirm Jesus was a historical person who died by means of crucifixion. As I mentioned previously, Josephus, fine Jewish historian, writing in the first century, writes that brief paragraph summarizing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he states, At that time there appeared Jesus a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained the following, both among Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who loved him previously did not cease to do so. So Josephus here mentions a historical Jesus and that he died by means of crucifixion under the governor Pontius Pilate. Roman historian Tacitus and others attest to this fact as well. Tacitus writes, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. Alright, so there you have Tacitus, and you have others, Lucian of Samosota, Mara, Bar, Serapion, and others attest that there was a historical Jesus and he died by means of crucifixion. We also have archaeological evidence. In 1968, the ossuary or the bones containing a first century Jewish man, a young man who was crucified by the Romans was discovered. His name was still on the ossuary there and when they looked at the bones they found something surprising that the six inch nail was still driven through his ankle you can see this on the internet and reconstructions of how the nail was driven through his ankle to fasten him to the post as he was crucified just as described of jesus christ in the gospels and then in 1878, there was another discovery found, a famous discovery called the Nazareth Decree here. This was a marble slab found in Nazareth in 1878, and it was placed there by the, under the orders of the Emperor Claudius, who ruled Rome from AD 41 to 54. Now, right around this time, he went down to Palestine or Israel to investigate because he had heard about this supposed Jewish Messiah dying and rising from the grave. And after his investigation, he wrote this Nazareth decree. Now, this is a very interesting decree here. It says that anyone who disturbs a gravesite will suffer the extreme penalty of death. Now, that's kind of unique here because tampering with graves uh, was common back there in this part of the world. What's interesting is that a decree was made at this time saying do not tamper with any 
grave here. Anyone who does will suffer the penalty of death. Why did he write that? Well, most likely, as he went down there to Israel, he heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He investigated things. He heard of these alternative explanations and left behind this decree. Then we have another interesting discovery. It's called the Alexa Menos Graffiti. Now, this is a work of graffiti. It's carved into a plaster wall there in Palatine, Rome. It was discovered and dated about 200 AD. Now, this work of graffiti, you know, it's like graffiti that we find today. A picture was scratched onto a plaster wall in a room there in Palatine, Rome. And the image shows a young man, all right? And he is a Christian there. Alexa Menos is his name. And he has his left hand raised up in an act of worship to what? There is a crucified man on a cross. And instead of a man's head, there is a donkey's head. Okay? And scribbled at the foot of that crucified man says, Alexa Menos worships his God. Obviously mocking Christians like Alexa Menos who worship the crucified Jesus Christ. So not only do we have the New Testament, we have archaeology, we have non-Christian sources and others. It's quite compelling that Jesus was a historical person who died by means of crucifixion. Two vocal critics of the resurrection. These are New Testament scholars and historians who do not believe in the resurrection. And they've written several bestsellers against the resurrection. But they write this, John Dominic Crossan. He writes this, he says, That he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman, one of the critics of the resurrection, denies 80% of the Gospels. In fact, both of these men do. But Bart Ehrman says this of the crucifixion. One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Right? So here are two liberal critics who do not believe in the resurrection, but they agree. Jesus was a historical person who died by means of crucifixion. Next, the tomb site was known and was found empty. The apostles preached the resurrection in the city where Jesus was crucified and buried. So people recognized and knew where Jesus was buried. When the apostles are preaching the message and identifying where Jesus was buried, all the gospel writers record that Jesus was buried in a new grave cut out of the stone of Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent, high-ranking official of the Jewish government, right? Now, because the apostles were preaching this message in Jerusalem, days after the resurrection, this fact could have easily been confirmed as true or false because you're picking a very high-profile government official and saying Jesus is buried in this man's tomb. That could have easily been verified. Also, if you look at the map of Jerusalem back then, Jerusalem, in our standards, it's not a very big city. Christ was crucified right outside the wall of the city and buried nearby. Right? So it's not a long walk. It's not miles and miles to go see the site where Christ was crucified and buried. It's just outside the city. As I tape this show, I'm in Honolulu in the district called Manoa. All right, and there's a cemetery about a mile, mile and a half up the road here. If I said there is a man who has died and buried in Manoa and his grave is marked, but it is found empty, 
that's just up the road here. A lot of people here would probably go up there and look at the grave site, okay? Because it's just right down the road here. It's not like it's in Idaho or something where people readily can't go. I mean, it's just right down the road. Jesus was buried right outside the city, all right? So the site of his burial could have easily been verified and investigated. Next, we have the resurrection appearances. Hundreds of people claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, this ancient creed that I'll talk about later, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, we can date to within five years of the resurrection of Christ. And on a later show, I'll spend more time on that important creed of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then we have the transformed lives of the disciples. Right Now, this is important because of this. Remember, when Christ was on trial, the disciples fled and they went into hiding. Now, what explains that suddenly, a few days later, they charge back into the city of Jerusalem. Who's in Jerusalem? The people that crucified Christ. They are still there, okay? And they're still in their seats of power. They're still there. And the disciples come running back into the city of Jerusalem and start preaching in the presence of their enemies. They're preaching, hey, you guys, the man you just crucified, the miracle-working teacher who claimed to be the Messiah whom you put on trial and you crucified and buried outside the city, that grave is empty and he is the risen Lord and Savior. What caused that sudden transformation that would cause these disciples who are cowering in fear to suddenly go running into the city where their enemies are, the men who had crucified Christ and preach this kind of message, knowing the kind of opposition they would face, the kind of persecution they would face for their message. And church history teaches us that all these men, except for John, suffered tremendous persecution and died a martyr's death. John is the only one that died a natural death, but he suffered for all of his life. Now, history shows us men and women will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. They will not. Okay, when it comes to your life or something you know is a complete lie, people will not die for what they know is a complete lie. Nor will they send their friends and family members to their deaths for a complete lie. And the disciples knew that the message they were preaching would bring them a life of persecution, suffering, and death, not only to themselves, but to their family members as well. What caused this sudden transformation? Then the preaching begins in the city of Jerusalem, right? It doesn't begin in a faraway land hundreds of miles away like India or Turkey or Europe. The preaching begins in the very city where Christ preached, taught, did his miracles, was put on trial, crucified, and buried. This is where the preaching of the resurrection begins. Now, if this were all fabricated, it would be impossible for this message to survive because they're preaching just days after the empty tomb and they're preaching in the most hostile arena you could pick, right? In the city of Jerusalem, where all the enemies of Christ, the guys who crucified Christ and want to stomp out any remembrance of Christ because remember, they see him 
as a false prophet, an apostate teacher, someone spreading a dangerous false religion there in the land of Israel. They want to stomp this thing out. And the leadership of Israel is right there in Jerusalem. And this is where the disciples are preaching. Now that message could have never survived, right? Because they picked the worst city in which to preach the resurrection of Christ. It could not have survived if it was not true. Second, the preaching begins very early, days after the alleged resurrection. Legends, as I stated in previous sessions, take 80 to 100 years to develop. Why is that? Well, the eyewitnesses who can verify your accounts as true or false have to die and pass away from the scene in order for legends to start developing. We know that the Gospels, as we mentioned in previous shows, were written very early maybe as early as uh, within 10 years of the resurrection. John, we know, was written about 95 AD, so maybe 60 years, right? But still in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. These are first-generation accounts, right? Way too short a time period for legends to develop. And the preaching is even early. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, that creed we can date to within five years of the resurrection. And the preaching itself of the disciples is just days after the resurrection of Christ. How could that message have survived? It's in a very hostile arena in Jerusalem in the face of eyewitnesses just days after the event. It could not have survived if it were not true. And then you have the testimony of critics and skeptics like James and Paul. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and also Jude. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah in the Gospels. It re records that embarrassing story that they believe that their half-brother Jesus was mad, all right, and they wanted to take him out of the synagogue where he was teaching and take him home and straighten him out. That's kind of an embarrassing story. By the way, that's what we historians call the principle of embarrassment. When a writer is willing to record embarrassing stories about himself that don't make him look particularly good or uncomfortable situations like that, there is a ring of authenticity there. Because as all of you know, when you're talking around the dinner table, if you're telling a story about yourself, most of the time you're not including embarrassing details about yourself. I mean, if you're talking about some kind of heroic encounter, <laughs> you know, you're going to portray yourself in a good, favorable light. You're not going to say embarrassing things like, man, we were so scared. We didn't even have the courage to go to the tomb. The only people who had that courage were the women. You know, while we were cowering in fear, they're, they're not going to say things like that. So this is the principle of embarrassment. But you have the brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, who after the resurrection come to faith in Jesus Christ and become leaders in the church. Then you have a guy like Paul, a scholar, a leader in the Jewish religious arena. He is a leader there. He was a persecutor of the Jews. And suddenly, he comes to faith in Christ and becomes their greatest evangelist. Now, something very compelling must have happened to have an enemy of Christianity like Paul come to faith in Jesus Christ. What's the best, most reasonable explanation for that? And finally, you have a massive Jewish societal transformation. What explains thousands of Jews, thousands, abandoning one of the 
Ten Commandments, worship on the Sabbath. They stop worshiping on Saturday, start worshiping on Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection. What explains thousands of Jews suddenly abandoning worship and sacrifice at the temple, believing this Jesus is the Messiah and has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial law? Acts chapter 6, verse 7 even states that temple priests came to faith in Christ. Acts 15 Verse 5 says, many of the Pharisees came to faith in Christ. What explains this massive Jewish societal transformation, you know, just a few weeks after the resurrection? What explains all that? Those are the minimal facts that we are all agreed upon, whether skeptic, atheist, liberal, conservative, evangelical. We're agreed on these facts. Now, whatever explanation that you provide for the empty tomb has to account for all of these facts. Your explanation has to be explanatory and comprehensive in scope. It's got to account for these facts here and give a reasonable explanation. Over the years, they have been given alternative naturalistic explanations that the disciples stole the body while the guards slept that the women went to the wrong tomb, uh, the swoon theory that Christ didn't die, he just went unconscious, and three days rest, he revived from the tomb, or the hallucination theory that the disciples hallucinated this whole thing, or a most recent one proposed by John Dominic Crossan a few years ago, is that while dogs ate the body of Jesus, or you have the substitution theory given by Islam, these are alternative explanations and they have all fallen short. They have failed to account for the facts. Now, next time we're together, we're going to look at these alternative explanations and show why they fall way short of explaining the empty tomb and accounting for the facts. We're going to look into that next time we're here together and see what's the most reasonable conclusion. I want to end here with a couple, answering a couple questions that I often get for the resurrection. Right? Number one, isn't the story of the resurrection the result of uneducated people who were willing to believe? Well, first of all, you have educated people who came to faith in Christ. Acts records that Pharisees and priests came to faith in Christ. You have guys like the Apostle Paul, brilliant, well-educated man in the Jewish law who comes to faith in Christ. You have people like Luke who is a doctor who comes to faith in Christ. So this fact that they were you know, all uneducated is false. Second of all, how hard is it? How much education do you need to identify that somebody died? How much education do you need that this guy is dead? And then, how much education do you need to identify someone who is alive? <laughs> how much education do you need there to identify this guy was dead and then three days later, this guy was alive. I mean, how much education do you need there? All right? The average person is going to figure that out. And why is it that less educated people would be more gullible on something like that? I think fishermen and tax collectors uh, like these disciples would readily be able to figure something like that out. And also, it says here, we're willing to believe. Many were not willing to believe. Thomas said, hey, unless I feel the nail prints in his hand and touch his side, I will not believe. Paul was an enemy of Christianity when he came to faith in Christ. James and Jude were his half-brothers, and you can see they mocked Jesus during the time of his ministry. So 
many were not willing to believe. Second of all, the Jews did believe in a mass resurrection at the end of the age, not in an individual resurrection like what Christ had. So that's one of the things that perplexed them regarding the resurrection of Christ. So this criticism, you had many who were indeed educated and most were not willing to believe. They needed some kind of compelling evidence before they would believe. And we'll end with this question here. Why should we believe a story that wasn't written down until long after the event? Well, last few weeks, we talked about the historical reliability of the Gospels, that they were written down in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Maybe as early as 10 years after the resurrection, the latest being John, about 60 years after the resurrection. But that's in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who could verify whether the gospel writers, what they were writing was true or was false. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Zucaran.